Um, well, good evening, everybody. Evening, evening. Uh, it is lovely uh, to be with you. Um, I've managed to get um, sort of 48 hours off, which is really lovely. I wasn't around this morning. Um, I've been to see my eldest son at university over in Lincoln and to feed him, uh, make sure he's uh, uh, well. And uh, then I've had a little bit of time away with Helen as well. So um, that's coincided with uh, Commitment Sunday. Uh, brilliant timing, uh, but we've made it back for this evening. It's really good. So um, if you don't know me, my name is Alan and I'm the Baptist minister here. And one of the great joys or one of the things that I really love doing as part of my job is that I get to lead our intern program. And uh, Luke has been on the stage this evening. Uh, Luke's been on stage this evening. There you go. You just weren't sure, were you, as to whether or not that was a moment. So uh, it's really good. And you've seen Sarah and Molly and Chris and, uh, and Ben over the weeks as well. And uh, not only am I plugging that we have an intern program for 2022, uh, but it's also for me a disclaimer uh, that um, tonight uh, that part of what I'm sharing comes directly from a conversation that I've had with Sarah, one of our interns. So if I don't quite hit the mark, it's Sarah's fault. Okay, brilliant stuff. She'll really thank me for saying that. Uh, it's really good. And if you are at all interested at in coming and serving in the church, uh, we've provided accommodation. We've provided a very small allowance so that nobody starves to death over the course of the year. And uh, we are pouring everything that we can into these five young people. And it's a real privilege. If that could be you next year, do come seek me out. It'd be great to chat to you. Anyway, the plug is over. Uh, we're going to continue this evening with our series, Exiles and Ambassadors. And tonight, um, we're going to be looking at Acts 16, uh, 16 to 40. Um, but what I would like to talk to us about tonight is faith for the fight, faith for the fight. And uh, that is where we're going. My device has just turned off. Here we go. Faith. We can put our faith in all kinds of things. And uh, I also, not only have I just had a little bit of time off uh, this morning, last couple of days, uh, I also took the morning last Monday. I know I very rarely work. It's only on a Sunday that I ever do anything. I know. That is a joke. We work really hard in the week. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> there was a deathly silence there for a moment going, that's right, they do only work once a week. No, we do a little bit more than that. But last Monday, I dropped my daughter early uh, on her way to school, and I thought, it's quite misty in Sheffield. Uh, I don't know whether, uh, you know, but I saw that the mist was beginning to lift. And I thought, I'd love to just get a little bit of time out so I'm going to take off into the Peak District, just for an hour, hour and a half. The mist is clearing here. I'm going to be driving up out of the city, so a little bit higher. The mist will clear, and even if it hasn't, it's starting to clear here. It's not going to be long, and if I get that vantage point over the Hope Valley, then I'll be there for when the mist begins to lift. And if nothing else, I'll have a great photo of the misty valley that I can put over social media. If you follow me on social media, you'll have noticed that there were no photos. Anyway, so I head up out of Sheffield. Uh, I park up near to Surprise View, over the, looking over the Hope Valley, and it is really thick in mist. I'm thinking, it's fine. It's clearing in Sheffield. It's going to be fine. So I park the car, and I head off on a really known path to me. 
And as I head up, I just realize that the mist isn't lightning, it's getting thicker. And so I get up to familiar paths, and then there's one or two turns, and I begin to realize that when you can only see about 15 feet in any direction, that you're going to get in a little bit of trouble. So I pulled out my phone, and I have a little walking app on here, and I also have uh, um, a sat-nav as part of that. So I, so I turn that on, and I keep walking, and I've taken a few turns, and I'm thinking, I'm not even going in the right direction. I thought I was going up, and now I'm going down, and I'm going round, and I've taken some turns, and I realized that I had absolutely no idea where I was. Anybody been there? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And so I'm taking turns, and not only am I sort of walking now longer, no longer surveying the beautiful view, I'm actually walking along like this. And so any time that there is a, a turn that I know that I need to, cut, need to get, even before I get there, I'm zooming in, making sure, right, it's around here somewhere. It's around, there it is, there it is. Right, where do I need to go? Uh, I need to go right. And every sort of uh, 20 seconds, every 30 seconds, I'm stopping, I'm checking. Hour and a half later, I make it back to the car. But without this, and without putting my faith in this uh, on Monday morning, I would probably be somewhere near Manchester uh, and still very, very lost. You see, we put our faith in things uh, all the time. And uh, I'm going to have a little bit of a look this evening at Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at the two characters of Paul and Silas as we continue to follow them as ambassadors for the kingdom um, through their journey. It's not a great week, or at least it doesn't start off that way. So uh, I think it'll be on the screen behind me, or if you've got it on your device. It's Acts 16 from verse 16. It says this. Once... When we were going to the place of prayer, this is Paul and Silas, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates, and they ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Excuse me. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains became loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailers with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Amen, amen, amen. So faith for the fight. In the passage, there is so much going on. But where I want to start this evening is to ask a question. In the scheme of things, all that goes on in this passage, did God will it that Paul and Silas were beaten? Is that something that God had in his big master plan? And you might think, hmm, God wouldn't do that sort of thing. It's obviously the evil men in the city. Okay, if that's the case, then did God stand by and allow this to happen to Paul and Silas? What's God's role in all that's going on here? Did Paul and Silas wake up that morning and gather together in prayer and pray to the Lord their God and said, Lord, as we go out into this city, as we're preaching in your name, as we're telling people about the gospel, will you please protect us and keep us safe today? And if that's the case, was God not listening to their prayer? Does he not care? But if that were the case, why would we then find Paul and Silas in the stocks with their feet bound, in the inner cell, in maximum security, don't get any higher security than than where they are within the prison. Why do we find them at midnight singing their songs and hymns of worship? Why do we find them praising God? Why do we find them praying and still trusting in this God who has put them there? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with it? Now, personal testimony. I had a great great childhood. 
I'm the youngest of three brothers. You talk to my brothers, they will tell you that I am the spoiled one. It's probably true. Uh, I did well at school. Uh, I had a pretty easy time. When you stand six foot tall, age seven, you don't get bullied. Okay, it was probably year seven, year eight, but I had an easy time through school. I swam at a high level. Uh, so the stuff that I really enjoyed doing, I, I did well. I was good on the sports field. Uh, I had the support and the encouragement of both my parents. It was really good. But at the same time, I had my own fair share of pain and heartache. I had a long-term girlfriend and a horribly messy breakup that involved my best friend. There were times when I drank too much and uh, my swimming career ended, I think, that night in the... In the um, uh, nightclub here in Sheffield, down in the lead mill at the moment where I went down quite heavily drunk and trashed the uh, uh, ligaments in my shoulder. There were times when, having been a straight A student, that I scraped through exams. And there was also the time, shortly after I came to faith, where I found myself over in America selling aerial photographs door to door. I don't know how I found myself in America selling aerial photographs door to door. All I know is that I had a long summer stretched before me when I wasn't going to be swimming. So I found myself with a British company on the edge of Lake Michigan, a place called Milwaukee, selling aerial photographs. And I was supposed to be out there for an 11-week sales program. New Christian. And on day 11, I walked onto the bottom of a guy's drive a retired gentleman who was watering his flowers uh, at the top. His dog, that I later learned was, uh, to be, was called Rusty, saw me, came down the drive uh, and was looking incredibly friendly. And as I put my bag down and made a fuss of Rusty, I lost the end of my nose uh, to the dog's sharp teeth. Some people want to laugh, and I know that that's Sam. Uh, thank you, Sam. So I had my nose bitten off by a dog. I was thousands of miles away from home. I'm a new Christian. God, what are you doing? Are you not listening? Do you not care? Let's go back to Paul's story. Acts 14, I spoke on a couple of weeks ago. Paul uh, was in another town, another place, and he is stoned, thrown, people throw rocks at him to the extent that he is lying, bleeding, bloodied on the floor, unconscious. The people of the town think that he is dead, and so they drag him outside the city walls and they throw him on the rubbish dump, leaving him for the dogs and the birds and whoever else might come and pick over the scraps of what's left. Today, we find him severely beaten with rods, maximum security prison. And yet, he is the greatest church planter, probably, that has ever lived. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, says this, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. 
I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So maybe, just maybe, all the bad stuff that happened to Paul, maybe it wasn't God's fault. Maybe all the stuff that's gone off in my life, maybe all the stuff that's going off in your life right now, maybe it's not God's fault. The Bible teaches that the state of the world is due to two things. One, we learn in the garden that the state of the world is directly related to the fact that humanity has rejected God and God's way. That the world is a stuffed up, broken place. That there is suffering going on all across the world because humanity has rejected the ways of God. And the second thing that the Bible teaches us, also in the garden but shot through the whole of scripture, is that God has a real and present enemy. He's called Satan, the devil, Beelzebub. And I don't know about you, but as I look out across the world, it's not right, is it? It's in a state of disrepair. It's a mess. And I know before I became a Christian, I used to go, God, what are you doing? And I saw the reality for what it is, that it's not God's fault. It is the choices that you and I make every day, that people around the world make every day. And God has a real and present enemy who comes, as Jesus said, to kill and to rob and to destroy. You see, as I look at the world, if I believe that God is in meticulous control of every moment and every twist and turn, then I look at the state of the world and I think that that's not very loving God. But you see, the Bible teaches that we have free will. We do. The Bible teaches that there is evil in the world and that he has sent his son to deal with that situation or at least to initiate the rescue plan. And we have a choice. Well, we have two choices that we face tonight. One... Will we choose to be part of the solution? Will we choose God's way? Will we choose Jesus? And two, we face the dilemma of asking the question, how do we hang on to our faith in the presence of the suffering and the evil that is taking place in the world? How can we hang on to our faith? How can that grow when life can be so flipping unfair? Let's turn again to the story. What can we learn? We look at the jailer. Story recap. Um, 
we've seen Paul and Silas. They've been wandering through the streets. They've been teaching day after day about uh, the good news of Jesus, that he's died, that we no longer need to be good enough to be uh, connected with God. We don't need to be good enough for his presence and his love to come and to change and to transform our lives. We don't need to be perfect so they've been preaching day after day after day after day. And they've had, for the last three days, a woman, a slave woman, has been following them. Somebody who is able to predict the future because she's, uh, she has a spirit that is upon her. And after three days of her shouting out and disrupting anything that Paul and Silas are trying to tell the crowds, Paul turns to her and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, he speaks to the spirit, come out of her, and the spirit leaves. No longer can she tell uh, fortunes. No longer can she predict the future. And the people, her owners, who have been making a fortune from her, have them dragged through the streets in front of the magistrates. And the magistrate says, strip them and beat them with rods. And they are taken and they're thrown and into prison. They're put in the stocks. They're praying. They're worshipping. There's an earthquake. The doors of the prisons, all of the doors in the prisons fly open. The chains that have been binding them fall to the floor. Not only their chains, but every prisoner in the place. The jailer, he thinks that that's it. The prisoners have all gone, they've all escaped. There's only one thing left for him. And that's to fall on his own store to take his life. Because he knows that if he has uh, let the prisoners go, he's going to be dead one way or another. And Paul cries out in the darkness, don't do it. We're all here. And so the jailer comes running, falls at Paul and Silas's feet, says, what must I do to be saved? Paul cries out this. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So, believe. We just need to believe in Jesus, don't we? So that's it then. Uh, if I think the right things, I'm saved. Hey! I believe that God exists. Hey! I believe that Jesus exists. Woohoo! Come on! So I'm picking up on the spirit of Luke has descended upon me from his introduction this evening. Yeah? Or is it more than just an intellectual assent to some idea? Or some historical fact. I believe that God exists. James, another writer of a letter in the New Testament, says, You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And then if we just believe that God exists, what happens when we suffer? Does that prove that God's not around? We're on shaky unstable ground aren't we if that's what we believe so no there has to be more to it than just an intellectual assent to an idea so the greek word used here for believe is pistuo i'm not going to get you to say that because i probably haven't said it right but it is from the root word pistis and the word pistis is the greek word that is used time and time again or derivations from that for the word faith that's where we started. We put our faith in things all the time. 
So pistis is to intellectually believe something because that's really important. If you don't believe that Jesus died on a cross, then again, you're on shaky ground, but it means more than that. Pistis means to trust. Pistis means to have confidence in, to have faith in someone. So what? Well, the question then for us is not do you believe that God exists? But the question that we must ask ourselves is do you trust him? Do you trust him? Recently, with the interns, uh, we got involved with a a Baptist leaders seminar. And there was a guy called Jeff Lucas He's a Christian writer, leader, uh, broadcaster, and uh, he was leading a seminar, a session called Leading in Babylon, Leading in Exile. And I'm thinking we're doing a series at the moment about being ambassadors and exiles. Let's get along and let's have a look. And he talked in that seminar about developing or helping to develop a mature faith. And his definition of what mature faith is that it is, and I quote, faith which is not outcome dependent. So faith which is not dependent on our circumstances. A faith that's not dependent on getting what we ask for in prayer. A faith which is able to say the same things as Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to his death on a cross. Jesus says this in Matthew, My Father, God, if it is possible, may this cup, may what lies ahead of me, may it be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, Lord. He says later on in the same scene in the garden, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Developing a faith that like Daniel's friends in exile, when they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, says this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we will want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. No, their faith, their trust in God is unshakable, regardless of the situation that they find themselves in. So the question for us tonight is what do we put our faith in? What do we put our trust in? You see, the female slave, she has this great trust in her ability to predict the future. Her future is all sorted. She's got this great talent. But we see in the passage that a talent can be taken away. I used to swim. I trashed my shoulder. I don't swim so much anymore. What do you trust in? For the slave owners, they'd lost their ability to earn the money. Do we put our faith, our trust in the financial security that we're able to build for ourselves? Because along with financial security comes position. It, come, it brings us status. 
builds our reputation. Do we put our trust in that? Because that's so easy to be taken away from us too. The magistrates put their faith in the rules. That's what they're there for. As long as everybody does the right thing, as long as we do what's expected, as long as we do what's right, as long as we don't step out of the program, everything's going to be okay. But even they get that wrong, don't they? And on the morning that Paul and Silas are to be released, when they learned that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and they've done things that they really shouldn't have done, they're brought low, they're humbled, humiliated. They go to the jail and they escort Paul and Silas from the place. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. You see, Paul and Silas are ambassadors of God and they are doing ambassador of God things. They're severely beaten, they're thrown in prison and yet they still place their trust and their faith in God. They're still worshipping. They're still praying. They're still trusting that God is good. They are still trusting that he is faithful. They are still trusting that he is all-powerful and almighty. They're still trusting that Jesus' death on a cross was for them. And, that his, and it was the ultimate demonstration of the love that God has for you and for me and for them. They're still trusting that he hasn't forgotten them. They're still trusting that they are God's children, bought at a price. They're still trusting that they are God's representatives. They're still trusting in the assignment that God has given them. They're singing hymns, and they're praying, and they're praising, and they're worshipping. With their feet bound in stocks, bloodied, and bruised, severely beaten. And it's in that moment, with their faith and their trust in the Father still intact, that there's a violent earthquake and the doors of the jails fly open and the chains on their wrists and the stocks at their feet fall off. And if that weren't enough of a miracle, the jailer, rushes in what must I do to be saved you see it's often in the midst of the pain and the suffering and as we cling on and we cling to the threads and the strands of our faith through the difficult times it's often at the very last moment 12 midnight that we see the very things of God God is good.